Welcome to the Gallery Girl podcast. Gallery Girl is a London-based website and curatorial platform dedicated to contemporary art from across the globe. In this podcast, we're going to focus on female artists, curators and practitioners who highlight art with roots in West Asia and North Africa. Enjoy. Welcome to the Gallery Girl podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Tamara Almashuk, a London-based artist and curator. Through multi-channel video performance and architectural installation, her work explores the epigenetics of place and the movement of people across societal and geographic borders, with particular focus on the intersectional body. She engages with decolonial feminisms and explores resistance as a site of potential. And she's a good friend, and I'm really excited to have her. So welcome, Tamara. Hi, Lizzie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's try and start at the beginning. What made you interested in art? I've always been interested in art. I've always been interested in spaces and places. Um, that began from when I was very little, uh, I, actually, my first memory is of being really obsessed with a space and an experience is yeah. when I was little in Saudi, we lived in a compound and there was a haunted house in the squash court. Oh, wow. And I was obsessed with the fact that they would turn this box uh-huh. into this kind of just an experience that you would walk through and weave through. And it felt so expansive and so enormous and mm-hmm. so kind of out of the world yeah. that it just made me obsessed with the idea of designing uh-huh. something like that. I would sit in class and I would actually make models of what would be a haunted house or any kind of experience out of paper. Yeah. Um, and so that's my first memory of actually kind of dreaming and imagining. Wow. And I took that into doing a BA in architecture at Wellesley College. And... Even though I loved the experience of designing and dreaming and creating, I kind of towards the end of my my architecture thesis, my advisor looked at me at one point and was like, "You realize this is an art thesis, not an architecture thesis, because really what I had done was just kind of again expand and just want to design encompassing experiences. That was kind of my, like, my, my catchphrase, <laughs> encompassing experiences. Oh, wow. So I kind of took a year to bridge the gap between an architecture undergrad and then a master's in MFA. Mm-hmm. And I did a post back at the School Museum of Fine Art. And that's actually where I discovered video because I kind of sat down to think what would crystallize these experiences that I was trying to design the most, how, how, what would that look like? And the image that came to my head was a person standing inside of a cube where every surface was projections. Wow. And there was this relationship to the body. There was a relationship to space. There was in the encompassing experience. And that's when I took my first video class. And so now kind of my work bounces between architecture and installation and performance where I'm using space, I'm using um, the body, but then I'm also using video. So it's literally all encompassing and like multi-sensory and pretty Mm -hmm. overwhelming. (laughs) People can't see I'm like mimicking a box. Um, 
when I first met you, you had been working on a project which centred around a list of names of refugees. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was the first work where I kind of dove into performance um, outside of the video. Mm -hmm. And so this piece uses the list, which is a list of 34,361 refugees who died on their way to Europe. It was uh, compiled by a bunch of human rights organizations and then published by The Guardian mm -hmm. in May 2018. And they actually republished again in 2019, and then the number went up to 36,517. Wow. Um, but so the year they published the first one, I was actually participating participating in an artist residency with Deep Lab, mm -hmm. which was a group of artists, activists, hackers, designers, just all around kind of badass women who had invited me to join them for a residency with the York Mediale to produce a piece for their for the the three day or actually no the week long Mediale festival mm -hmm. in New York and. I hadn't. I wasn't able to be there physically at the time because I was still working on my on my visa to be in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I skyped in, and there was these conversations about borders and about kind of you know these, this piece of paper dictating mm -hmm. so much of our lives. Um, and it was the year that the list was published, and one of the women brought the list in, and it was it was pretty much a consensus the second she brought it in none of us could kind of put it down and so we decided to work with this list and i ended up creating a video piece that we projected at a pretty large scale um outside of the york art museum mm -hmm. and the video was of me scrolling through the list and highlighting certain things that we all thought were important so either locations or causes of death or numbers mm -hmm. Um, but as we worked with the list, I felt this, this kind of gut impulse to place my body in front of it mm -hmm. and uh, humanize the, the work more than just having a video, which is how we digest this information anyway, like through mm -hmm. our TV screens, through news, through our computers, through our phones, in this really kind of fast and non-human non way. And so... I came up with the idea to read the entire list. So from start to finish, I read the names, the causes of death, the locations of death. And yeah, that was it. And, and ages and the ages. Um, and there were a few things that I thought about kind of going into it. One of them was that the names on the list were from a variety of different countries. Mm -hmm. And some of them are countries where the language is not something that my that my tongue is used to. And so I went into it with the giving myself or allowing myself the space to stutter over the names mm -hmm. because to 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 glaze over it wouldn't have honored them enough, wouldn't have honored the names enough. And to not glaze over it is kind of a stepping outside of a kind of Western-centric version of seeing people mm -hmm. where you kind of... Because this happens a lot to anyone who has a different name. You know, you repeat your name two, three times and it always gets kind of rounded and, and westernized and Americanized. Or, so I kind of refused to do that in this piece because this piece was about seeing people. Mm -hmm. And if I was... And, and I had to put myself in that position of 
quote unquote discomfort. Yeah. Um, to see them and to truly honor their where they were from and the journey that they had been on. Yeah, and what kind of response did you get to that performance? Because it's so confronting. It's not something that you can. Um, I mean, I'd be surprised if someone saw that and was completely unaffected. Um, there were there was the general the majority of the people were moved by it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people were kind of surprised that I had stayed there for that long, and they would go and come back and you know they they said to the director of the festival actually spent a lot of the day there with me, which I thought was really beautiful because mm-hmm. he had so many other places to be. Um, but he, they would go up and talk to him because obviously I was reading, I didn't stop. So he was getting most of the, the responses along with uh, one of the women from Deep Lab. And so one person came up to him and was like, she's still going, you know, after going and coming back multiple times. Another person brought a teddy bear and put it next to me on the floor and said, thank you for caring. Um, another person came up to me and just hugged me, um, which seems surreal to say now that we've, we're in the middle of like, <laughs> with strangers um but yeah she hugged me and then I later found out that her husband had been uh, uh, a refugee and so and he was there too mm-hmm. um one person did come up to the director of the festival his name is Tom and he is absolutely magical and she told him you know I can't, I can't remember her exact words but she was upset that she was being subjected to this information and she, because I was on a speaker. Right. Um, and so she said, Don't, didn't you think about what this would do to us having to listen to this material all day? Right. Um, so that was the only kind of not so, not so positive right. reaction. It was also... Yeah, you know that you got through to them, like even though it was uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. you, prob- you obviously like, provoked some kind of reaction even though it wasn't the one you wanted yeah exactly and it's and it's it's a really interesting one because it does speak to how a lot of people kind of digest other people's trauma Mm. in a way yeah and kind of a need to bury your head in the ground because you have the privilege to bury your head in the ground. Kind of someone saying, oh, I don't want to get a political at this time is the height of privilege because it means that you have the right to not get political. Yeah. Or you have the ability to not get political. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that happens all too often if people don't think that they have any connection to something, they just brush it under the carpet, which is unfortunate. Okay, so um, after the initial reading of the list, didn't you have a couple of other iterations where you asked other people to join in? Um, and how was that making it a communal experience? Yes, yeah, so there was two. Yeah. Um, the first one was at a residency with the Center for Art Design and Social Research, CADASAR, mm-hmm. And it was in Merida, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, I asked, this piece was actually in collaboration with one of the co-founders of Catasar. Her name is Dalida Maria Benfield, and she is an incredible artist and someone who very much so ties in activism and art in a really mm-hmm. beautiful way. Um, and so we worked together on this iteration of it where she gathered 
data on deaths between the U.S. Mexican border, mm-hmm. and I selected pages of the European list and translated it to Spanish. Mm-hmm. So we ended up with data from U.S. and Mexico, data from Europe in both English and Spanish. And I asked 18 artists from nine different countries, mm-hmm. we're all artists participating in the residency with us, to read with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the performance lasted around 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. It started with my voice and then Dalida's voice and then the chorus of voices kind of started and everyone read at the same time simultaneously in both languages. And it was deafening. Yeah. It was so louder than I had anticipated it was going to be. Mm-hmm. We stood on one side of the street and read towards the crowd who was on the other side of the street. Mm-hmm. And it was at the uh, closing exhibition for the entire residency. Mm-hmm. So there were people there and, the one thing that I, I, I also kind of didn't really guide people that much. They had seen me present about the work on the first day of the residency, actually. And this was towards the end of it. So I had had conversations with people about it. They had seen me present about the, about the first piece of work, which is actually called Can You Die If You Don't Exist, mm-hmm. um, which was named by one of the women in Deep Lab. And it was about the fact that most of the data read that or said that... Um, most of the data said no name, right. so it was anonymous. Right. Um, and I think I think I think she ran some kind of software on it and came up with like something like ninety something percent of wow. the people were nameless, which is a lot, you know. Yeah. And so, and then also you would see that in parts of it, in parts of the kind of causes of death, it would say unknown mm-hmm. or where they were, how old they were, it would be unknown. So there was just a lot of unknowns in it. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, so that's, that was the title for the first one. The second one, Dalida and I titled it, We Exist, Existimos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third version, which actually is, is untitled, um, but I performed that one at a fundraiser that I co-organized with a incredible poet, friend, and activist named Lisa Lux. Um, and the fundraiser was for Lebanon, and it was kind of at the height of the photo, which was the revolution that Lebanon was um, kind of going through. And for that iteration, I actually asked the audience to read with me. Mm-hmm. So I gave a little bit of a brief about the piece, and then I just said, if anyone wants to read, put your hands up. And I just handed it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that one, I actually handed out different sized papers. So mm-hmm. I would kind of cut, them, cut one in half and hand it out to two people. So that this way I kind of created more of a kind of like peaks and, and, and valleys in the sound. So it would get louder when pretty much everyone was reading at the same time. And then people would start to trickle off because their pages would finish. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I or what it would feel like if I kind of tried to manipulate the sound and the duration a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and for both pieces, I told I, I kind of the only brief that I said was, "It's okay if you cry. This is hard material. It's okay if you scream. This is hard material." The one thing that I want you to do is just to try to say people's names. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to kind of the point, which is to see people and to humanize it. So I said, "It's okay to stutter. Allow yourself that." You know, just make sure that you try as far as you can to, to get someone's name as right as you can. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's 
Amazing that it has longevity, it's travelled all these places, so it's kind of impacting more and more people. Um, yeah, I kind of, I want to continue to do it. I, I've had ideas where, you know, maybe in one iteration, I translate it to all the languages that are on the list, mm-hmm. and then have people who, have different, who speak different languages reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, or just what would it sound like, because if 18 people was deafening, mm-hmm. what would it sound like? We had a hundred people. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, and then how, what would it sound like? How many people could we get to be able to read the entire list? Mm. Because if I did it, when one person did it, it was 10 and a half hours, but let's say we want it to be 20 minutes and then have the entire list read by a group of people. Yeah. So I think it's something that's just going to continue, that I'm going to continue to work with because it's not material I've been able to put down. And actually I think, I have, I have two more pieces that are kind of coming out of this series, and one of them is a video piece, which may or may not be called I Exist, but it's in reflection on one of the sentences from the list, yeah. which is 100 children, 168 adults, emergency call of NORD, Octocosis Lampedusa, Italy. Mm-hmm. And I actually found the emergency call, and I have, and so the piece is kind of going to work with that sound and it's there's a sound piece that's written by and sound artist who and just an artist but who works with sound who's just absolutely incredible and I have no idea how I got so lucky to that he said yes to writing this piece but his name is Walter Kutundu and he's just incredible um so he's written the sound now I need to do my my part to yeah. it. <laughs> um, and the next one is a trip to travel to after after I did Can You Die If You Don't Exist, mm-hmm. the first one, the ten and a half hour one. The morning after I was I wanted to write down to journal because I wanted to kind of capture my, the memory, my memory, my mind, what and what was retained in my mind in that moment of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just started to write and I ended up with a lot of things, but among them, a list of five places mm-hmm. and apply for a grant to go to these five places to volunteer and to cook Arabic food and to be someone who speaks Arabic, but then also for the art component to gather ocean water, river water, soil, mm-hmm. math, to talk about the epigenetics of place. Mm-hmm. So epigenetics is the theory of inherited trauma in our DNA. Mm-hmm. So if trauma changes our DNA, what's to say it doesn't change the DNA of matter? Yeah. Of the ocean that, you know, countless people have drowned in, or the river water, the Everest River, which is a very low river between Greece and Turkey. Yeah. And the reason people pass through it so much is because you can kind of wade through it, it's low, mm-hmm. but then when the tide comes up, it gets really strong, and that's how a lot of people end up dying. Okay. So there's specific places where there's just a high, really high concentration of people mm-hmm. passing through it and then passing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so my theory, or I've come to believe that epigenetics also applies to space, to space and place and matter. Yeah. And so I'm going to be doing this journey once borders open up. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> incredible, but also super emotional. But I think yeah. that it's something that a lot, a lot of us, who are like diaspora kids 
like really feel like we had like ties to places that we only know on a superficial level and you can't even explain and like you get that feeling sometimes and you're like why is it so intense but it's just it's just there and it's something that other people can't always understand yeah it's epigenetics it's our bodies yeah so um speaking about intergenerational trauma both of us were quite impacted by the explosion that happened in Beirut and the Thawra and everything that's going on because um, both our parents have spent a significant amount of time from there and I know you is, like started to make work in response to that do you want to elaborate? <laughs> yeah so I, it's it's the very beginning of starting to make work about it. And actually, I think this is... It's feeling really good to be exploring these... Kind of these these threads. Mm-hmm. And they're things that, were, that, that I have kind of been working with for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of epigenetics and home. Um, and what does home mean? And I actually filmed my house in Bahrain right before I left to move to London a couple of years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, there, there's always been kind of thinking about home and about connections to home and being in the diaspora. But I I said this to a friend, to actually to Lisa Lux, who is uh, a wonderful poet, who's actually in Beirut, um, just kind of being on the ground and helping people, that I feel like I became Arab the day Beirut exploded. Mm. Because just something happened in my body and it's kind of inexplicable. And it was it was a rush. It was in my skin. I felt my skin. And I felt my skin kind of, or my DNA kind of heave inside of my body. And there there is no kind of rational reason why. Mm-hmm. I had been there once, but my parents grew up there, and it's a place that's very close to my family's heart. I still have family there. And so I have been writing about it, and it's going to turn into a video, but I can read kind of the very, very beginning yeah. of very, very new. <laughs> <laughs> um, I finally understand the look in his eyes when I said, I'm not coming home. It's like I had convinced myself I wanted more, that I was better, that the Western words that colonized my tongue belonged to me and I to them. But 15 days ago, I was born enraged to a land in rubble. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been selling the dripping gold of my skin to lips that lap at the fractures within. It's like all the times mama told me to remember who I am, I placed her words in Western soil, forgetting that olive trees were planted in the East. It's like 52 days ago, I began to land in this skin. Wow, that's so powerful. So I feel like, yeah, no one really understands what it's like to have roots somewhere else that's always misrepresented in the media. Yeah, I think so that's actually the the line right after that is it's like I haven't been wondering when they plan on decentering, right. which is about the fact that you know Beirut happened, the the explosion happened, mm. kind of while while 
Black Lives Matter is still protesting in America. And right after it had its worldwide moment. Mm -hmm. And it felt like everybody was doing a lot of work Mm -hmm. to understand and to learn how to be an ally Mm -hmm. and kind of what to say, what not to say, what to post about, what not to post about. And so, and I had done a lot of activisting. I had done a lot of organizing. um, And it just, it kind of, not kind of, it surprised me to see a mundane Instagram timeline. Right, yeah. When it exploded. And that's what, that's kind of what I mean when I say Arab, it's just I realized that I'm not part of them. Mm-hmm. I realized that we are not the same, and that we are we as Arabs are not afforded the same thought and the same care and the same the same intention of of learning mm-hmm. and being a better ally. Yeah. We kind of people are used to our cities turning to rubble. Mm-hmm. Are used to seeing brown bodies in violence. Mm. There's another line that says no one ever said don't share a photo of a brown man in blood. Right. Because there were lots of conversations about don't share photos of, of black men yeah. being uh, with, with violence against them by the police or being murdered or being assaulted. And that's because they didn't want to normalize it. But we are so beyond this conversation of having our bodies and the violence against our bodies in our cities normalized that mm. even my well-intentioned friends called it that part of the world. Mm. You know, oh, I don't know what's happening in that part of the world. So, you know, there is something that is specific to being Arab and that's specific to violence against our land and our Mm. bodies Um, that kind of changed me when this happened. Yeah, it's it's been quite shocking, the fact that people just don't engage in it Um, when so much culture and beauty comes from... Beirut, wherever in the Arab region, it's it's so diverse as well. That's another thing. People just blanket and make out that every single part is the same, where like a different street is different to somewhere around the corner. It would be mm. so interesting to see what you put with that poem. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be skin, my skin. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the Mediterranean, some water, because there's bits about it that are about crossing water uh-huh. and family water. And and then there's bits about it that are about my my grandmother's house in Palestine, which they had to leave when she was nine years old on a boat. Mm. Um, and so I might show little bits of, of that house. Yeah. Yeah, it's but, so crazy how, like, you have attachments to these buildings. Like every time we go to Beirut, we go and stand outside my mum's old house. I just, yeah. I just admire. <laughs> like, it's so weird that it's always, like, such an important thing to do. Like, um, buildings and place. you know if it's still there? Uh, yeah, it's still there. It's still there. It's one of the few buildings, that actually, is still, <laughs> is still there. Which is special, in a way. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Um, and also I realized like recently, like so much of your work has a textual element. Um, did you ever see yourself as a poet? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think 
I still don't, to be honest. I think I still see myself as an artist who writes. Yeah. Um, though I do enjoy reading it mm. to people. Um, but it started with a piece titled Where Are You From? Mm. Um, it seems to always come from a place of rage. It seems to always come from this like internal monologue. Mm. Um, and it's, but it always is, I don't see them as standalone pieces. I see them as voiceovers to videos or as words in relation to text. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that they will always be in relation to, to images. Mm -hmm. So speaking of where are you from, which is a piece that I saw you perform live and really spoke to me and probably will speak to a lot of people listening to this podcast. Do you want to share a bit with us? Yeah, sure. I'll share a little bit. It's quite long, so we'll do the, we'll do the intro, which has a more explanatory, explanatory tone. Uh-huh. Um, so... It always goes like this. Where are you from? Sometimes preceded by an apologetic awareness. Sorry to ask this, but your accent is so different. Where are you from? Sometimes it's senseless small talk for lack of anything substantial to say, or worse, a pickup line. Where are you from? Here I have to make a decision. Saudi, which has its bag of worms. Do I want to have to play the role of educator? To be an example of modernity and ultimately have my excellence reduced to my westernization? Bahrain, it's ambiguous, people don't know it. I can just say it's a small island near Dubai. Dubai is chill, people like it. Or I can say Saudi and Palestine. This is a good one. It roots out the Zionists. All answers, though, are followed by, oh, but your English is so good. You must have gone to an international school. Here I have to make another decision. Either I went to university in Boston, lived there nine years, so I picked up the accent, which is true. But it qualifies my excellence as Western, as white, as American. The truth is, I've been speaking English since I was born. My parents spoke to my sister and I in both English and Arabic fluently. And they put us in French preschool, elementary school, and did it in middle school until I moved to Bahrain, took a break from language, and did Italian in uni. So the truth also is that many Saudi girls speak multiple languages. But no, my excellence can't be Arab. Where are you from, really, says, you're not from here. You're not like us. You are not us. Where you're from can be thoughtful. It can be a desire to understand, to understand identity, to connect, but it often, almost always, is not. Where you're from is also existential. A generation of contemporary Arab cannot answer this question, and more so has an existential reaction to it. This generation are descendants of the diaspora of grandparents who fled wars on boats, of parents who went to boarding school in Lebanon until the war broke out, a generation that inaugurated international existence, and a generation that followed, that grew up in a diaspora, craving home. Yeah, I love that poem so much. It like, <laughs> says so, like, so many people, I'm sure, can relate to it. And I completely understand how it feeds into all of your work. Um, so thank you for sharing. And um, as here in London, lockdown is beginning to ease and life is going into some state of normalcy, whatever that means, what are your plans now? To be honest, I'm putting myself in a self-imposed lockdown. I have decided that it's time to tackle all this video content that I 
have just kind of been sitting on. And it's so interesting because it's all video material that I had made in relation to thinking about home Mm -hmm. and writings that I had done in thinking about home. Mm -hmm. And where I am now, kind of mentally, um, and with my writing, it just feels like this is the time, especially what we're talking about with kind of feeling like I became Arab and and actually in that first sentence when I say 15 days ago I was born in rage to a land in rubble mm-hmm. uh, when I had written it 15 days ago was it was 15 days from August 4th mm-hmm. which was the closing happened so it all feels like this is a moment when things are coming mm-hmm. kind of together and, and setting me up to be able to or setting me up to or setting myself up to create this body of work that responds to my Arabness and home. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see what your self-imposed lockdown creates. Already, like, the beginning of something really powerful. Um, So thank you for taking the time to talk with me and share those snippets of your work. Um, Everyone can find Tamara on Instagram at T-M-R-A-A-L-M. And yeah, thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was nice.